Welcome to Pot to Popular, a podcast where we interview the media, marketers, and moguls who are mainstream in cannabis. Join along as we learn from the greatest minds in this industry and learn about how cannabis is becoming part of popular culture, health, wellness, and industry. Welcome to today's episode of Pot to Popular. I'm your host, Rosie Matteo. Today, we are joined by a very special guest, my friend and colleague, Brady Cobb. Brady is a prolific cannabis entrepreneur. He recently sold his business, One Plant, to Cresco Labs for an astounding $213 million. He is a longtime cannabis advocate and is one of the most tuned-in entrepreneurs in the Washington regulatory environment. He's going to join us today and talk about what the regulatory environment could look like, what the future of cannabis looks like from the lens of Washington, and where he sees the future of the cannabis industry going. Welcome, Brady. Thank you for having me. So great to have you here. You know, we've been talking for the past 10 minutes. I could talk to you forever, but we're going to get into some questions here. So I want to start with a little bit of background. So you're an incredibly uh, visible and vocal member of the cannabis business community as a lawyer, a lobbyist, an entrepreneur, an operator, and Twitter thought leader. Okay. For a handful of people who might not know who you are, give us the story, like a brief overview of your career and what drew you into the industry. Cause I know you got a really interesting backstory. Yeah, no, thank you. Uh, I am a a recovering lawyer, as I tell people. You know, I was a practicing attorney, born and raised here in South Florida. Uh, Primarily what drew me to the cannabis industry is what drew a lot of people to to do what they've done in life. And it's kind of following in your parents' footsteps. My father, unfortunately, was on the wrong side of the cannabis law and wrong side of the movement. Uh, He was one of the largest smugglers in the state of, in, in actually the history of the Justice Department between 1977 and 1983. They pegged him at right around $300 million worth of cannabis smuggled into the U.S. on, he had a fleet of shrimp boats, but he never had any nets, which I don't know if that was a good idea. Maybe he should have had the nets just for show. But uh, ultimately he was arrested, incarcerated. Uh, My family was broken up, grew up. My mom was a single mom, did an absolutely amazing job. Uh, got me where I got into, you know, went to Florida State, went to law school. My vision was kind of, he, he, he got busted. I wanted to change the law. So I've obviously, you know, I, I've been a huge fan of the plant for far longer than my mom would like me to admit. Uh, first time I smoked weed is probably 14 years old. And it's, you know, being a single, right. single child with a single mom, moving a lot, uh, you know, I, it definitely helped me. It was something that helped me calm down. And I just, I'm a big surfer. It was part of that kind of culture that I was, I grew up in. So for me, it was something that I've loved and couple that with my father's history. I was able to kind of reconnect with my father when I was 16, 17. And uh, he lived up near where I went to college at Florida state and got to spend time with him. And it, it just reinforced that I wanted to do it. I worked at a very politically connected law firm, uh, kind of was in their government affairs department, running their government affairs department, got trained by one of the most skilled Senate presidents to ever kind of grace the state of Florida, Jim Scott, and just love politics. I tried a bunch of cases, hated trying cases because everyone in litigation is miserable. No one likes being sued or paying legal fees. So it was a good skill set to have. And it ultimately all kind of what pushed me into the space was my father dying of cancer. So in 2010, he passed very painful bone cancer and he had every prescription for an opioid under the sun. And this is a guy that was a drug smuggler in South Florida in the 70s. So he was not, uh, drugs were not foreign to him and he would not take those pills because the way they made him feel, I would have to go score him weed in the black market and roll him joints. And when I saw how that much that helped him 
and, you know, got to know people from where he was doing chemo and everything else. And, and it was helping a lot of people. It just kind of reinforced to me, okay, you got to go do this. And I had just had my son, uh, my first child, our first child in uh, May of 2010. And my dad passed away uh, about six weeks later. And that was kind of the moment where I looked at my wife and said, you're going to kill me, but I'm going to go do this. So I made partner in this very politically connected law firm. I was the youngest guy to make partner. And a day later told him I was leaving which they still say was the most unique response to partner they've ever heard. Uh, <laughs> went and set up my own shop and started dabbling in private equity, representing private equity funds. Uh, ultimately got connected with Andy DeFrancesco uh, through some deals. And he started talking to me about the cannabis work he was doing in, in Canada. He was one of the original financiers of Afria, which is now Tilray. And I got to go up and spend a bunch of time with, with the founders of Afria and kind of help them plan a U.S. strategy. And then when Florida came online and we missed in 2014, we got it in 2016. We actually went under contract to acquire uh, a license in Florida called Chestnut Hill Tree Farm, which became Liberty Health Sciences, which is now AYR. And I, you know, I led that group and was the chief legal officer there. It was the first license to ever change hands in the state of Florida and the first public company in Florida. Um, and we got that done. But my vision has always been premium, premium, premium. I want to do I, a lot of folks kind of want to get away from the cannabis as you know industry and the cannabis culture. I want to embrace it, and because it's it's really fucking cool and it's got such a great backstory. And there's so many people that have been a part of it. So I left, went and formed my own group uh, with Andy's help, and we bought another license in Florida, and we built One Plant Florida. That's when I met you, uh, and we ultimately scaled it, just focused on premium, singular focus, kind of being exactly who we are, wearing the heart on our sleeves. But we used to always say taking our cannabis seriously, not ourselves. And we built that, scaled it from uh, 150 grand in January of 2020 in revenue to close to 5 million bucks by December of the same year, all with a focus on the top end of the market, hand trimming everything, and ultimately did a deal and sold to Cresco. Uh, throughout that whole time frame, I've been lobbying DC though. Since 2016, well before, it was basically me and Jim Haggardorn from... Uh, Scott's Miracle Grow were the two main groups up in DC that were actually pushing when we first started. So I had two US Senator friends vouch for me so that I could hire uh, Haley Barber as my lobbyist because he wouldn't even take a cannabis client at the time, but we got him to take us and we started working not on Democrats, but on Republicans because we knew we needed to start to sensitize Republicans to the issue. So it's been quite the fucking ride. I took a month off in July of this year after exiting Cresco. Uh, just to kind of reset. And I think I haven't slept that much. I felt like uh, uh, Forrest Gump after he ran all that in those races, you know, he ran across America three fucking times. He slept for like two weeks in the movie. That's how I felt when I got to Colorado. But the last, it's, it's almost been very poetic in the sense that while I've kind of been building the next project, I've had a little bit of free time over the last call it four months to really focus on federal policy and have that be instead of something I'm racing to go do amidst running a business and managing 300 employees. It's been nice to just be able to really go headlong into that, given the opportunity we have. Yeah. The, your story is incredible. And there's just so much there. And I, I want to take a step back. Cause I do want to get to the acquisition by Cresco and, you know, everything you're doing in Washington right now to, you know, to help move this forward. But, you know, a lot of people listening to our, this podcast are like would be entrepreneurs. So I would love in your own words to sort of talk about like, what of the skill sets that you had for being like, you know, a practicing lawyer, like what skills or experiences do you think best prepared you for like all the things that you've done over the past few years in the space? Like really like what are those like key takeaways that somebody listening, you know, coming into the space, what they might need to know or, or where, how they should be honing their skills? 
Yeah, it's a great question. And, and, you know, I've had the, you know, it's been a really cool as part of this process to help mentor some you know, entrepreneurs as they jump into the, as they jump into any business. And I think it applies to any vertical cannabis. Just, just you, you, first you got to have a passion. You can't be an entrepreneur. As you know, you built your business. You got to have, you got to be passionate about what you're doing because it is going to suck 80% of the time. Correct. The, the, <laughs> They see the smile, they don't see the tears, you know, exactly. It's, it's, it's like the iceberg mentality. They see the top 10% of the iceberg. Oh, they're crushing it. They don't see the 90% where as my wife used to always find me when I got, you know, on any given day, when I got home, I'd be laying on our wood floor, just breathing. Or someone in our office came by on a bad day and they'd, you know, the stock's going off a cliff or, you know, something happened at the farm. They just find me laying on the floor with, I usually bring my dog. I call it my comfort dog, but you know, from a skill set standpoint, it's, you need to have a passion because it's not going to be easy. This can't be, Hey, I'm going to go do this. And then the first bad thing that happens, you're going to run away from the second thing is you need to do the work on the front end to figure out what you want to be, but more importantly, what you don't want to be. It's far harder. It's what you say no to, as opposed to what you say yes to that will define the success of your business. So are you willing to, there are going to be a million of opportunities. And I, I, our chief commercial officer, Ryan Martin, who's one of my closest friends, had a great way of saying it, don't chase shiny objects. And if you look at successful enterprises that have been scaled from startups, we always stared at a few and studied a few. One of them being that I always like to talk about is Starbucks. Starbucks simply found that coffee in America sucked. You either got McDonald's or gas station coffee, and they introduced a better concept but they didn't do a bunch of things. They just sold coffee for the first 20 years of the business. And they got really good at just selling coffee. And if you take, as we built one plan, it's like, let's not try to have every product variation possible. Let's be really good at a few things. Let's be really good at flour. Let's be really good at solventless concentrates and everything else will take care of itself. Because if Starbucks had just had to sell coffee for 20 years to get to where they were, another one we always looked at was van shoes. Vans sold three styles of shoes for 25 years until they started clothing, hats, sneakers, high tops, everything else. It's about not chasing those shiny objects. I see so many cannabis companies that are now in a bad spot from a production standpoint because they went so quick, so fast and tried to be everything to everybody that they can't be something to the people that matter. And I think that as an entrepreneur, if you don't have that plan, you're, you got a born to lose tattoo on your forehead. I, I, I absolutely love that advice. I was literally just talking about this last night. Like sometimes like it is very hard to say no. And like, there's like money in front of you, but sometimes you have to just, you know, focus on things, you know, live and work in integrity. And, you know, those no's end up being like the best decisions you can make. I was just talking to somebody about this last night. So I love that. That's uh, uh, something that we share in common because it, that could be like the difference, right? Just saying no to something. It is. Seem like good opportunities, but like that was not part of the plan right now. And right now we have to execute the plan, you know, the task at hand. And this brings me to my next question, because I think you sort of answered it, but I think people are pretty curious about it because there are a lot of single state operators right now, um, you know, that are probably looking, you know, at, at the M&A market that's pretty frothy right now. Um, so when you guys exited, when Bluma uh, exited to, to Cresco early in the year, what do you think made it such a attractive acquisition target at the time? And what advice would you give other single state operators who are trying this exit strategy, right? You were seeing, you know, that, you know, uh, Terrison just acquired, you know, Gage as a single state operator. So we're seeing this action in the market. What do you think sets a single state operator up, you know, up for success as it relates to being rolled up into one of these larger conglomerates? Well, I think you've got to look at what state are you in? Where are you focused? 
what makes you different in that state. You, every, you need to have, it can't just be that you have X amount of top line revenue and X amount of stores. You got to have a story. I think as these MSOs are looking to make acquisitions, they're looking at strategic acquisitions. So states that matter, limited license states, business plan, can you operate successfully? What are your, you know, the market has transitioned from a top line revenue story and even in some cases from an EBITDA or adjusted EBITDA story to more of a, are you profitable and are you efficient at running a business? But more importantly, what is your brand? I think if you look across CPG as a whole, everyone's gone hyper, hyper local. When you go to a region and go to a bar, not many people are just ordering a Bud Light. They're ordering, okay, what's your local IPA? So if, if you're an SSO, you need, to have a, you need to have a strong presence in your local community and have something that is, that is someone's willing to pay for. I mean, if you look at the alcohol world, I mean, look at the beer deals that have gone down for local breweries just to have that hyper-local feel. If you look at grocery stores, I mean, you know, Kroger's running Harris Teeter in the Midwest. They're running a different strategy out West. And the one time they maybe looked at changing Harris Teeter back over to Kroger, the thing almost went bankrupt and they switched it back really fast. So I think if you're an SSO, that's one of the things we did is you really got to know who you want to be. You need to do the SWOT analysis on the front end to figure out where's the white spacing in the market that you're operating in. That's something we spent a ton of time before we ever launched surveying the market, going into our competitor stores, checking out competitor products and figuring out where we thought the white space was. And once we identified that, it was kind of, I used to tell the team and we did a weekly operations meeting where we had everyone physically in a room together. I bought everybody horse blinders. Like they put on racehorses cause they can't, that way they can't look, they can't look either way to see who's catching. I, I ran track in high school and college. I was a middle distance runner. And our coach used to scream at us if we looked over our shoulder. Because you're not looking over your shoulder at the person coming behind you. You're looking at the finish line. You have your race to run. You have your strategy. Go run it. That doesn't mean you don't adapt as things happen. But don't chase, don't chase shiny objects. And if you do that work on the front end, someone's going to come by you. If you're just a generic company that has a two-to-one pen, a three-to-one pen, an edible, average flower, you're probably going to get bought at some point, but it's not going to be a spectacular moment. If you build that brand and you figure out your local market and you own it, that's where you're going to have a big hit. Yeah. And speaking of- uh, and so you, and you, you mentioned Florida. Gage. You, you yeah. mentioned Gage. That's Gage owned Michigan. Those guys, Fabian and his team were incredible operators in Michigan. They went hyper-local. They focused on the local communities. They focused on the top end of the market and they got rewarded for it. And I think Terrace and shareholders are ultimately going to be rewarded for it. I agree. I'm very excited about that deal. So um, it's, uh, yeah. I'm a huge fan of this. Yeah. I mean, they're, yes. they're, and they're great a brand and like they've got that cool factor and, and, so, and like a loyal customer. Um, love those gauge guys. And of course, love Jason. But, you know, talking about the local market, yours was Florida at, at Bluma and also like two, two, two exits, right? Or like two, two uh, projects there with, with Liberty. How do you see um, Florida? How do you see the current medical market evolving over the next year or so? You know, and what makes this market unique, like uh, from either an operational consumer standpoint, you know, and also because like you are so tapped into this, like what consumer trends are emerging on the West Coast or Midwest that would likely resonate for future consumers in Florida? Right now we're in this vertically integrated market. Like there are no like incredible brands at this point, right? Um, How do you think that's going to play out anymore? I think- (laughs) <laughs> I think Florida is going to continue to be, in, in my mind, it's number two in the country as far as markets, attractive markets and growth markets. 
you know, California is, you know, for me, it's kind of California, Colorado, Florida, Pennsylvania. Uh, obviously, whenever New York gets their shit together and starts to go into adult use in a, in a real meaningful way, which, you know, the again, the bureaucracy of democratic governance has its flaws. Graded ideas, not so good at execution. Everyone thought we were going to be looking in New York at a adult use in 2022. And I think the air got let out of that balloon. But if you stare at Florida, here's where I think Florida is so important to pay attention to. It is the biggest vertically integrated market in the U.S. And it is the test of all tests. And the road to Florida is littered with dead bodies of companies that have not been able to execute. And to Kim's credit and Leaf's credit, they have executed at a very high level for a period of time, not in the not in a way that I would describe as a long-standing pattern to success for cannabis, but in a shorter-term pattern, they're they're the dominant player in the state of Florida, and they've proven they can operate in Florida in a vertical market and do so incredibly efficiently. The only knock I've ever had on True Leave is the product quality, um, which again that can be fixed. That can certainly but that's that, but that can be fixed. And I, you know, if there's a desire to do so, they'll do it. But what Florida shows is who can actually operate vertically. And I think you've seen Boris come in and the Cure Leaf team and, and Joe come in and they have started to post some numbers in Florida. You know, they've had to do it via some pretty aggressive discounting um, to go into kind of a bit of a price war, which, you know, the media picked up and covered, uh, which, you know, a couple months ago. But where Florida is going to continue to define things is who can scale and it's not just like California. There's plenty of folks that are talking about, you know, cookies coming to Florida. You know, those guys are great retail operators out in California, but can they cultivate, process, dispense, distribute, logistics, run retail, run delivery? Can they do wear all those hats? I'm a huge fan of the Jungle Boys crew, which is coming to Florida. Yeah. But again, can, can they do it vertically? Can you go deal with the local land use fights? Can you, to get a dispensary open while you're simultaneously building out a lab? Because I always joke when you see these Florida license transactions go down for $55 million was the last one to plan at 13. That's merely the ticket to get into the big boy room to spend another 50 to 60 million to scale up. I got a bald spot from doing that twice. It's, <laughs> it's, it's painful. It, it uh, to, hard, hard, hard gig. And you look, I give, I give a guy like, you know, GTI credit. They're finding, they're waiting to figure out and, and Ben and Anthony, they're waiting to find the right strategy to deploy in Florida because they realize it's not something you can just throw money at. You can't do that. You can't go into Florida in a half-assed manner. And there's plenty of companies, you know, look at Satera, their SPAC deal failed largely on that. It wasn't because of new England. It wasn't because of Netta. Netta's is crushing it. It's because you can't have a half-assed strategy in Florida. There are no shortcuts for two reasons. A, it's a vertical market. You can't buy anything wholesale. And B, it is one of the most challenging environments to grow cannabis at scale anywhere in the country. Less about the heat, more about the humidity, and more about the consistent temperature changes. In the morning, just yesterday, 62 degrees in the morning, yesterday, 78 by the middle of the day, back down to 65. Unless you have proper HVAC and ventilation, we, we, we put 600 tons of AC for our 54,000 square foot facility. When I tell that figure to buddies in other states, they're like, what? And I go, well, the primary reason between that and dehumidification that 27 to 30 degree temperature swing on a daily basis, if you don't have the right HVAC, you're, you're, you're going to have mold and everything's going to have to go to distillation, which is why you see some of these companies on the weekly report posting massive distillation numbers, but posting low flower numbers because they can't sell it as flour. Or if they sell it as flour, they're selling it at 15 to 20 to $25 an eighth, right. which that was for them that make for truly if it works for Kim, she's crushing it. 
just to be clear, you know, Kim and I have always gone back and forth. Everyone likes a David and Goliath story, but I very much admire the business that she's built. She's crushing it. For me, I never saw myself as competing with True Leaf or Cetera or Cure Leaf. I always saw myself competing with the black market. Right. The black market in Florida is six to seven times as large. I routinely still go into the black market to see what I'm competing against. And it's hand-trimmed high-quality flour. Right. And it sells for $50 an eighth over and over and over again. Unbelievable. So that's where I saw myself competing against because there's 700,000 plus or minus patients in Florida right now, up from 500,000 a year and change ago, but there's 21 million people. Right. The balance of those people, the 20 million plus people are buying weed somewhere else. It's in, it's in a Starbucks parking lot or a gas station parking lot, or, you know, you get delivered to their house by a dealer and I want to, I want to, I want to grow good enough cannabis and pro, and, and hand trim it, or grow good enough, or and produce good enough concentrates or you know derivative products that someone will go through the trouble to get their medical card to go not buy it in the black market and come buy it for me. And that was one of the prouder moments at One Plan is when I saw some of the black market guys I know come into the store and just buying our stuff for their own personal use. I went, okay, we've achieved something here. Right. Uh, can you do it at scale is the question, which was our target. And I think Cresco is going to be able to, to kind of pick up where we left off and, and continue to do it. But Florida is going to be interesting, especially I would pay particular attention to Florida as people scale up in 22 and 23 ahead of what we anticipate will be an adult use constitutional amendment on the 2024 presidential ballot. Right. You turn on 21 million people in Florida and 120 million annual tourists especially that, that number is probably going to be greater by the time we see the numbers for this year, given all the people that are coming here because yeah, of yeah. what DeSantis is doing. The, the, it'll be the biggest, it, it could easily surpass California as the biggest market. It also has the highest potential for profitability for companies that can enter it because you're not dealing with 3,700 licenses like California has. Right. Right. It's, very it's, exciting. A, it's a blessing. It's a blessing and a curse. Yeah. It's, it, I always said it was a blessing and a curse. The blessing is it's limited license. The curse is you got to do everything. Right. So, but the benefit of doing everything, again, the blessing and the curse piece is instead of having a 40% margin because you're buying most of your product wholesale, when we sold Bluma, we were north of a 70% margin blended wow. across all products. We were, some products were north of 90% margin because oh, really? when you control, when you control your cost of production, it, you take care of the problem. Yeah. Wow. We, we understand why that acquisition happened. <laughs> um, but I do want to switch gears because like there is so much conversation right now about this and, and you're at the center of it and you're such a wealth of information for this industry and real steward for us. You had your ear in Washington. So the recent intro, uh, introduction of the Safe Reform Act is a huge deal, right? Um, and there's serious possibility that SAFE will finally be passed but in the year through, you know, the and. NDAA. So with the current momentum and excitement of some of the cannabis reform and legalization in the future, how do you see the process shaking out in Congress today with all like the moves that have happened, you know, with Nancy Mace over the past few weeks? Like, where are we today? And where do you see this going? So it's a very interesting time frame. I mean, for folks, and I feel bad for those people on Twitter that haven't spent a ton of time studying politics or U.S. politics that are just jumping into the fray now. This is probably one of the most hyper-partisan environments that I've ever seen. I've been studying it and following it since, you know, probably 2007, 2006, 2007. This is incredibly, I mean, we're talking about uh, some of the stuff's going on now where you know, you're not even getting party line votes to do things, uh, even from the party in control. It's, it's incredibly wild. But from a safe banking standpoint, when safe got added to the NDAA or proposed to be added to the NDAA house version, you know, a couple months ago, 
we did we did a Twitter Spaces, and what really intrigued me is is how it how it was handled in the house. To me, it was how the house handled it was going to kind of give us a, a barometer of potentially the viability of how it was going to move. And when the house, a lot of folks, every naysayer out there, I mean, all the Politico reporters are, you know, very low shot. It's going to get included. I think every institutional analyst said that very low shot, it gets included in the house version. And then they called it up yeah, and it got a fucking voice vote and got included. And I went, Hmm, okay, here we go. And we started having, you know, we've been having meetings religiously every week uh, with members and key leadership folks. And the question that, you know, now it's, it's really, will the Senate, and more importantly, is Jeff Merkley, Senator Merkley just uh, was reported as saying yesterday, it's going to come down to whether leadership in the Senate, which is Chuck Schumer, and more importantly, probably Cory Booker uh, and Chuck Schumer, are they going to let it go through? And the craziest thing to me, and Pete Landrum, who's been my lobbyist with Haley's group for a long time, as we laugh, we feel like we're in uh, the, the show Stranger Things in the Upside Down. Because right. if you would have told me uh, five, six years ago that there'd be cannabis reform legislation attached to a must-pass bill that had, by my count, north of 15 Republican senators that would support it in going with the NDAA, and the only way it may not move with the NDAA is Democrats could block it, I would have told you you're smoking really bad weed. Um, because, it, it, and that's, uh, quite candidly, that's where we are. Uh, and there's, now there's been a bunch of news organizations that have picked up on that. And I know Schumer's taking the position, oh, I want to have a broader bill. You know, we have our CAOA. He has the same canned tweet that comes out every couple of days. As for Booker, the reality of it is, though, CAOA is DOA. It has no chance of obtaining the requisite number of Republican votes. I don't even think they get all 51 Democrats to vote in favor of it. So it's dead on arrival. They promised cannabis reform. The first potential cannabis reform is in their hands. Now we're, now we're going to play political partisanship. Now throw in the fact that you have a debt ceiling bill that has to be addressed. We don't raise our debt ceiling. We have a much bigger fucking problem than cannabis markets to deal with. We have the Build Back Better that has to get passed. Uh, and the NDAA, which has to be passed. All three of these measures have to go through the Senate. And they have to go through the Senate before the end of the year. Or the Democratic Party, as the party in control, is going to have a tremendous amount of eggs on, egg on their face and, and questions to answer. And I don't know if it was intentional or not, but waiting so long to move the NDAA, which pretty primarily moves in October, because they were fighting over the infrastructure package and everything else, McConnell saw an opportunity to exact a pound of flesh, and that's what he's doing. He said, look, I want my amendments in the NDAA. You waited too long. You want to deal with this, or do you want to miss the debt ceiling? Or do you want to miss the NDAA? And the narrative is you don't care about troops and national defense after Afghanistan. Uh, or, do you, or do you not want to get Build Back Better done? What do you want? What do you want to do here? It's your call, Chuck. And that's the politics that you see playing out now. And I think you're seeing when, when, when a guy like Senator Merkley, who's a safe banking sponsor in the Senate, comes out and does the interview with Natalie Fertig, who does cover the space quite extensively in, uh, in, in D.C., when he says that yesterday, knowing that any comment made by a legislator, just for the record, for anybody at home that's not familiar with the process, think of D.C. as a everyone wearing suits and ties and a much more polished world wrestling federation. Everything is scripted. OK, comments aren't made to reporters in the public eye that are they know they're reporters that aren't scripted. This is all like a giant play that's happening. I always say political theater on Twitter. I understand why they're they want to have more broader reform before safe goes through. It's just an incredibly flawed strategy. And I don't think they're going to be able to actually pull that trigger when, it, when, the, when the time matters. 
given that if they don't, they're not really looking at a cannabis win before the midterms, and it's going to be a big problem for them. And I think you've just got to look at the political calculus. There's so much going on. This is a, this compared to the debt ceiling is a relatively small issue. It's in the House bill. It has multiple members of the committees of jurisdiction advocating for its inclusion. It has state's attorney generals, state governors, including the governors from New York and New Jersey, saying pass this Booker and Schumer because it will help us fund social equity applicants to be able to get off the ground and get their businesses going. All those factors taken together, I'm still very bullish that it gets included in the conference process, whether that's the full conference process or a more attenuated one because they've run the clock out. I still believe it gets included. And the narrative that they want criminal justice reform, here's the reality of criminal justice reform that no one's really talking about because it's not a democratic, it's not a campaign point. And that's, that's where I'm getting frustrated with Senator Schumer or Majority Leader Schumer and Booker is it's, it's starting to feel like cannabis is just a campaign tool for them. Right. And that's kind of bullshit. There's so many people's lives that hang in the balance here. And there's so the robberies are increasing. There's, there is a true danger to the 300,000 Americans that work in the sector. Criminal justice reform can't be achieved at the federal level. It's not possible. You and I've talked about this before. It's state-based convictions account for more than 90% of all cannabis-related convictions. So you can decriminalize. Yeah, you can decriminalize. But as we sit here, you and I on this podcast, breathing air, Joe Biden could pull his pen out and stroke of, stroke of the pen on a pardon and release the federal prisoners today. They could, right. well, it's could in their control. Like, you know, that's leadership, right? And, and people will follow. There's, like they're seeing at a federal level happening. It, it makes it okay at the state level, right? We the need fucking to have of governor of New Jersey yeah. already, the governor of New Jersey already did it. Yeah. He did it. So if the governor of New Jersey can do it, if the the governor of New Jersey can do it, I'm pretty sure the president can do it. So it's kind of like when I when I see a tweet, oh, well, well, Schumer wants to get people out of jail. Not really, because if he wanted to call the president, you're all you're in the same party. You're not calling Trump. You're calling your guy. Tell him to sign the pardons. Elizabeth Warren sends letters to him saying, do it. No response. Elizabeth Warren sends a letter to the, uh, to the Attorney General of the United States, Democratic Attorney General. Please uh, reschedule cannabis and initiate proceedings to reschedule cannabis. That was back in October. Crickets. So they can talk out of one side of their mouth. And the one thing I'm probably most proud of is no one really knew cannabis issues. Now when I go log on the Twitter, so many people are well-versed in the narrative of what we're actually facing. It's no longer a partisan issue. It's now do the right fucking thing. Yeah. And to that point about the partisan issue, you know, the majority of Republicans have historically not wanted to broach a topic of legalization. But now, you know, one of their own representatives is spearheading the initiative um, and more coming around. So what do you think changed in the past year that's making them reevaluate the stance? Like in terms of like, you know, as part of the theater, as part of doing the right thing, like what is what is bringing the Republicans around right now? Well, I think that, you know, when we went into D.C. and started in 2016, it was to go get Republican votes. And what I think you're seeing happen is a lot of, you know, there's been a concerted effort to educate them on states' rights. So a hallmark of the Republican Party's political platform is states' rights. Cannabis is the ultimate states' rights issue. In states, the voters amend their constitutions to allow for it. How are you going to argue with that? And I think we're even seeing deep South conservative Republican senators come along and say, yeah, I'm not, you know, sparking a joint anytime soon, but if my voters want this, 
then I want my, my ones that are operating in my state to be able to have access to banking services and to be able to have this be an option. And yeah, we need to look at the criminal justice side of things, but in a responsible way. And Nancy Mays comes along and, and it becomes a champion and does what she does. And we're so proud to support her. And it's a lot of the hard work in the shadows. But one of the things, it's been grossly underreported by the mainstream media, the amount of Republican support. We had a U.S. senator named Cory Gardner, a Republican, outspoken in favor of it for a long time. And it always was, oh, the Democrats are going to fix the problem. What I used to always say to people is, I hear you. But if they were so interested in fixing the problem, they had Obama in office for eight years. They didn't do a single fucking thing. People sat in jail that eight years, much the same as they're sitting in jail right now, much the same as they sat in jail for Trump's four years. Nobody did anything. You had complete control of the government for four of those years. Bill Clinton, eight years, control of the government for four. What I think changed is it became no longer a West Coast kind of California, Oregon fringe issue. Right. When cannabis is legalized for medical use in Florida, when it's in Ohio, when it's in Michigan, when it's in Pennsylvania, New York, those are states you don't win the White House if you don't carry those states in the Electoral College. Okay. That woke people right. up. That, that woke people up. Okay, when seven, seven out of 10 Florida voters in the swing state, and we're usually pretty good at being the swing state that fucks up elections, when seven out of 10 voters said yes, it woke people up. And I think, it, you know, the good news for us as an industry, whether it happens in the NDAA or not, is we are now a tier one issue. For sure. It's when, not if. Yeah, I love that. Like, so buy the ticket, take the ride, right? It's happening yep. it's when. Um, so, yeah, I want to talk a little bit like one, one important thing that we've spoken about that that's in um, that's in the bill, safe banking, right? So if it were to pass uh, by the end of the year, what immediate banking and operational changes can cannabis companies expect to see? And what do they have to wait longer on? Like, so what would it mean if safe actually passed? If safe passes, the biggest thing to me is it triggers that the FinCEN Department of Treasury update its uh, anti-money laundering guidance and its marijuana-related business guidance to allow for banking and to allow for traditional financial services for cannabis companies. That I can't underscore as an operator how huge that is because that will turn on. Do I think JP Morgan and Bank of America are going to start banking cannabis immediately? No. But will the small and mid-sized banks that have been on the sidelines immediately begin to offer traditional financial services? 110%. That brings cost of capital down overnight. We've already seen a kind of a trend to lowering cost of capital uh, over time. Kudos to Ben and the guys at GDI. They, they, they achieved tremendous feats to reduce theirs. And I think cost of capital based on two things. Bankers are realizing and private lenders are realizing our day is coming to an end soon. We need to start getting competitive, but also the fundamentals of the businesses are improving so well. Even with a federal law overhang and a 60% tax rate, these companies are still throwing off positive net income and huge you know, EBITDA gains quarter over quarter. So that'll be the first thing felt is cost of capital coming down. You're going to see traditional banking services. You're going to see potential you know, credit card processing come online, not pin debit bullshit, real credit card processing. Then you're going to see banks begin to open up. I mean, the cost to bank, look at Florida. There's one bank in the state of Florida to serve multiple billion dollar market cap companies. And people are moving, moving cash around. We had, to, we had to have daily pulls out of our stores with armored car service just to move the cash to the bank's one branch in the state of Florida. So you're going to see a broader access to financial services. And the biggest thing I think you're going to see is safety in the workplace. So robberies as cash comes off the premises will, will go down. And if you see what's going on in Oakland right now, I mean, it's like the wild west. Unbelievable. It's like a regression, right? Like it's, it's, a, it's a total regression. It's getting worse. Like how is this possible? Like 
you know, 10 years into them having a program, more than 10 years, and them having to, 10 years having a program, how is it getting worse? It's, it's, it's astonishing. And then I think you're going to see, I firmly believe, and I, I'm in the minority here, but I firmly believe that safe banking and the updated FinCEN and AML guidance, which is what's kept everybody on the sidelines, will be the stepping stone to U.S. uplistings. Amazing. Uh, I believe the exchanges are, you know, I can tell you without question, the exchanges are following the developments very closely. And I think with safe banking cover and in, in the regulatory process, if we can achieve some language in that regulatory process on the updated FinCEN and AML guidance, then there'll be the door opening. Cause they, this is an American story. It's complete and total crap that if you're a U.S. company employing U.S. persons, you have to list and trade in Canada. But if you're Canadian company serving Canadian persons, you can list and bank in the U.S. This needs to be an American growth story. Right. And that needs, that, that needs, these transactions need not, no disrespect to my buddies up in Canada. You know, my only real beef with the Canadians is how they say the word about it's about not a boot. But aside from that, this needs to come on shore. This needs to be a U.S. And look, politicians need to wake up and see that. And if you look at the state of Colorado, I always use Colorado as kind of my, my example. That state went from a budget deficit to a budget surplus inside of three years on the back of cannabis taxes and yeah. took the money and built schools, parks, and, and capital improvements on their own budget without largely not having to pull federal dollars. There's the model, guys. Wake up. I love that data, right? Like, can't yeah. deny that. It's unreal. And, you know, and, and about being like a U.S. growth story. So, you know, I want to take the entrepreneur hat. Um, where do you see, you know, the current stage of growth throughout the U.S. and the cannabis industry is obviously huge. Where do you see the most promising or attractive business opportunities for entrepreneurs who want to enter now? I, I know the, you're a long-term uh, uh, you know, operator, but like, what are the other opportunities that are exciting to you and think entrepreneurs should be looking at? I think there's a, there's, a, there's a really big opportunity in some of the more legacy markets, you know, the California markets to go in and there, there's going to be a lot of stuff on sale out there. Grew too big, too fast without a sustainable regulatory scheme. There's going to be an opportunity to go in there and take some assets and, and re, kind of redeploy them and focus on premium, focus on building a brand. I, I think there's some opportunities there. I think you need to look at some of the ancillary products and how to help companies. A lot of these companies that say they're brand building, they're not brand building. Uh, there's not hyper-local focus. It's, it's, it, it's largely because they've tried to go too much and do too much too fast without knowing who they wanted to be. And I think they're from entrepreneurs looking to enter the space. There's an opportunity to go identify some of these niche markets and some of these ancillary products and figure out how to be that cool, local, hyper-local brand for some of these larger MSOs to give them the ability to enter the markets in a more meaningful way and achieve a deeper penetration. So I think there's that. And I think you've also, there's going to be licensing across the country. You know, Florida's getting ready to issue more licenses. New York's going to issue a bunch of uh, local licenses. Those are all things, as long as, again, you develop the right business plan, identify the vertical you want to occupy. It's a tremendous opportunity for entrepreneurs. We're, you know, we're in the second inning of this baseball game. There's a, still a tremendous amount of time for the entrepreneur to, to jump in. Yeah, I always, and people ask me like, you know, about joining the industry or advice that some people think like it's too late for them. They only realize like oh. we, we can't even bank. Like it is first, <laughs> like, we, like I can't, we can't bank. So th there's a lot of opportunity. So um, it's been undeniably um, a tremendous yet wild year for cannabis. So what are key learnings from 2021 and what are your predictions for 22 as we're coming towards the end of the year? I think 20, you know, what I learned most from 2021 is bigger is not always better. Uh, a race to just get massive is not necessarily going to work. 
Uh, I think the other thing I learned from 2020 is, or excuse me, 2021 is if anyone's thought they built a brand, they haven't. Uh, there's not a, there's not a dominant brand out there. And so there's still a huge white space there is who's going to go start building consumer brands. And the third thing I think is, is we're still just tethered to federal policy reform until that's fixed. And that's largely the reason I jumped into cannabis reform in 2016, is I recognized it was either going to be our biggest headwind or our biggest tailwind. I didn't want to be on the sidelines. So I think those are two really, that's what I learned from 21. As you stare at 22 is who's going to, what companies are going to emerge and be able to begin to adopt premium at scale and really meaningfully build brands. Because I don't, you know, absent another big slowdown, we're going to have to go, you know, COVID was a huge accelerator as people were home all day and needed to get stoned. And, you know, you saw in most of the medical states, the patient numbers shot through the roof. Uh, that's unless we have another giant shutdown, which I don't foresee happening. This, the industry is going to have to double down to go have its own organic growth quarter over quarter, not just something that's fueled by a COVID rally. And that's going to come down to creating products that people actually identify with and want to buy. So as I stare at 22, it's going to be who can figure out how to do that at scale. For sure. And then as my last question, um, what's next for actually Brady Cobb in the coming year? Anything you're particularly excited about? Yeah, I am. So we're, I'm finalizing kind of going back into the space in a, in a meaningful way. We've been, been working on some projects. We're going to launch a brand that's kind of tied to, you know, a lot of my father's story and my story, uh, which we're really excited about. Uh, we're going to launch, you know, hopefully jumping in and we're going to deploy a couple of different states at the same time. But as we, as I enter the space, it's, we've been working on it pretty hard the last two or three months. I, you know, doing our SWOT analysis and doing the hard work we talked about earlier in the podcast, we're going to be exclusively focused on premium, uh, top of the market, high end, uh, hand trimmed, solventless concentrates and flour. And go into these, go into markets and just go try to occupy that white space. So the team's all, uh, the team's ready to go and we're excited and look for us to uh, start making some noise again in Q1. I can't wait. Uh, trying your Mach 1 was life changing. So I'm ready for Brady <laughs> to come back to market. We're coming. All right. Well, Brady, thanks so much for joining us today. It's always great chatting with you um, and looking forward to seeing if some of these predictions come true in 22. All right. Thanks. Good, good to be on again.